Hello and welcome to Dear Adam Silver, a podcast about sports, art, and the creative space they share. My name is Abigail Smithson and I am a visual artist and longtime fan of the game of basketball. This episode features an interview with photographer Bill Bamberger about his body of work, Hoops. For over 10 years, Bill made photographs of basketball hoops all over the world. I was lucky enough to have the chance to see an exhibition of his work at the National Building Museum in Washington, D.C. earlier this year. After seeing his photographs, I immediately reached out to Bill to do an interview. He's the first photographer I've interviewed on the podcast, which is exciting to me as a sort of photographer myself or someone who thinks about photography a lot. Bill's photographs have been exhibited widely all over the United States, including at the Smithsonian, and he, his work has been published by a range of outlets. He is currently a lecturing fellow at the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University. His exhibition entitled Hoops will be on display at the National Building Museum in D.C. until January 5th, 2020. If you are in the area, I definitely recommend stopping by to see this wonderful collection of images. I hope you all enjoyed the interview. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs> so I had been visiting Washington, D.C. Um, just for a weekend at the beginning of March and uh, was leaving on a Sunday afternoon, catching a flight back to Arizona. Um, and my friend was catching a bus and he said, why don't we just go to the National Building Museum? I've been there once before really quickly before either of us have to leave. And, uh, yeah, we just walked in. Of course, it's a beautiful building and the inside was so incredible. And then we found your exhibition. Um, and I'm a huge basketball fan and my artwork right now is made in response to basketball. So to sort of stumble on, um, these, these photographs of, of hoops, um, felt very much for me like a, an aligned meeting, <laughs> um, which, was, which was really nice uh, to experience. And also when I had started making work about basketball, it had been, uh, I was collecting old basketball nets um, from nice. all different courts and then photographing the nets okay. in a kind of archival way. And so even though I love basketball, I've never photographed players or the game actually happening. And that's not really something that that interests me that much. So to see that there was this, you know, your photographs are about basketball, but they're not about, they, they say a lot about the game without showing any of the, the action of the game. And that was, mm -hmm. that was exciting to me to, to find that in a different iteration than, than what I had experienced myself. And so, yeah, that's, that's, those are the connections that I made with your work immediately from a personal level, um, besides them being, visually compelling um and beautiful both the the places that you photographed in and the compositions i was so excited to see this other way of of sort of um interacting with the space and and what happens mm -hmm. there that doesn't involve um the the event of the game so um but sort of what the game leaves behind which i think is such a for me a really mm -hmm. nice. an idea i yep. keep coming back to is like what does the game leave behind and so yeah that's where i that's where i arrived from and um it was so exciting so then i got on the plane and I, all i could think about was was all of these images they're so rich and so just packed with with um variation and similarities it, it's it was it's it's overwhelming um they are overwhelming i think in a in a in a positive way um, so well, yes, thank you. this hey, is all to And say. do you have a collection of, you said you collected, do you photographed, do you actually collect nets as well? Yes. So I, um, I mean, this was for my thesis work, um, during <laughs> grad school. So I have this large co collection from East Baton Rouge Parish where I went to, I went to grad school at LSU. So I have a large amount from there, but also, um, my partner and I, when we have taken, uh, road trips, um, we stop and try and get nets instead of like souvenirs, <laughs> we stop and mm -hmm. try and get basketball nuts. And I always put up a new one um, in exchange for taking down the old one. I try to make it That's kind of a, a trade. And, you know, we're getting married and I'm going to wear a basketball net in my hair from Tucson. And like, it's just, it's, they become a part of, um, you know, I've, I've photographed them and archived them in that way. But, um, 
yeah, they, they, it feels like I'm kind of like the holder of these, of these records. Well, I, um, I wish I had known because I would have brought you some. From oh, the <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, if you're got, continuing. <laughs> I mean, there was a, a metal one just outside of Cape Town in yeah. South Africa. That I don't know that you'd want to wear it in your hair on your wedding day, but <laughs> right. at and all. I, the wear of it in the sense of its durability that it was, you know, put in a place that was kind of rugged. It was out in Kailicha in one of the townships outside Cape Town. And I thought, wow. you know, every net kind of has a purpose, not just for the game, but for kind of, you know, you know, resisting the elements, just like the backboards. They're, mm-hmm. you know, they're very much integrated in the design of the place. And the other thing that, you know, comes up for me is you tell me this, it sort of, you know, prompts one of my fantasies and something I really haven't done, but I should have is so many of the backboards I've seen. And the stanchions, the posts are worthy of collecting. They're just too damn big. Totally. Uh, you know, like the, I don't know if you noticed the meat market signs in mm-hmm. uh, one of my. You know, I mean, who would take an old grocery store sign and convert it to a basketball backboard? And it's just sort of as an object, it's so beautiful. Right. And uh, I think of photographers like Walker Evans, who collected artifacts as they, you know, in the days before many people were doing this. You know, as they. You know, we're taking images of places. They were also taking pieces that represented the fabric of the place. So, I love the idea. If we ever meet in person and out your way, I want to. I'm looking forward to to seeing these nets. Yeah, and and I find that like you were just saying, the nets have as much personality as the as the um, as the backboards or as the places. Like they're all they've all weathered differently and been used differently. And I had never seen a chain basketball net before till I moved to to Baton Rouge and a lot of the nets there are chain and so that was a whole nother thing to think about and sometimes there's just like one last piece of fluff hanging off the hoop and it's like oh that fluff is so important that that has all the information I need so yes I I, um if you I would love to see some of the um yeah if you come across compelling nets that's an important important part for me. So yes, let's get back to the sort of genesis of this yeah. work for Please. you. And I like this idea that you've discussed about it. This project found you um, that and as someone as a photographer, or I consider myself an artist who thinks like a photographer, uh, rather than a traditional photographer, but I have not I'm not a portrait as far as a traditional portrait of people. That's not the the subject matter I'm most drawn to. So that was that seeing the transition from from your work of, of portraits to um, to landscapes. I'm also interested in that. So maybe we can move through those two things here at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, no, I I come out of a pretty classically trained tradition of documentary work, and uh, you know the photographers who inspired me initially really were portrait or you know, photographers who would go to a particular place and tell the story of the people in that place in a way where they would kind of integrate themselves into the life of that place and truly assimilate and uh, you know or or you know be you know audacious enough to like August Sander to, to a, a, you know a German photographer who at the time of the Third Reich you know wanted to show a portrait of his native Germany and uh, a portrait of the people that would include homosexuals, that would include uh, African Americans, or not African Americans, but Black people, that would include you know, gypsies, homeless people, um, of course Jews. You know, and you know, at a time where the Nazis were very interested in propagating this notion of the Aryan race, here's a photographer that's making a political statement just photographing the the people that truly comprised this country. And the work was very political, much of it destroyed. But the idea that you could just go out and by looking and telling the story of a place, kind of, it can be political, it can be nuanced, it can be complicated, it can be ambiguous. Uh, And, you know, I, when I was coming up uh, in school, um, you know, at university, I went to University of North Carolina, big basketball place, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I think I, I imagined a career, you know, at least my parents imagined for me a career in business or law. I certainly was a good student there on scholarship, but I really wanted to be a novelist. I just started writing and I just loved the idea of, you know, t- t- you know creating stories and uh, a, a life's work that would interact with the worlds we live in. And, uh, but I just 
wasn't good enough. <laughs> it was too simple. I just, I didn't, you know, I loved the first draft. And as you know, all good writers, you know, it's never the first draft that gets you there. It's the kind of reworking, reworking. And I think you really have to love the process in any field that you, you know, take on. So when I discovered photography, it was kind of like being a writer. You can tell stories about the world, the visual in the case. But I love the entire process, the, you know, the entirety of it all from, you know, meeting people, talking to them, photographing them, getting to know them mm-hmm. uh, and kind of very much being part of their lives to then processing the film, going in the dark room in those days and making the prints that the technical side of it so appealed to me as well. And even today, you know, as we work digitally, the idea of sitting at my desk now with a glass of wine in hand <laughs> and listening to music uh, or a podcast and editing images, it's a, it's a really, I just like every bit of the process. And I also like the technical piece of it. So I think, you know, I kind of found photography and it found me at a time in my life where I was looking to do something different. Uh, and, uh, you know, as I said, kind of you were asking about kind of the, my early work. You know, most of those, all of those projects were kind of portrait projects. Um, my very first one was the, the story of one small community, North, Northern Durham, called, uh, well, here in Durham County, where I live now, uh, downtown, and just doing portraits of people from, uh, you know, downtown businessmen to homeless people on the street to shop owners out in the country, tobacco farmers, uh, the local fox hunting crowd. So it was a real cross-cultural look at the people that inhabited this one county at that at that time. And, uh, you know, very much kind of modeled after August Sanders. And uh, anyway, uh, so that my trajectory then followed that, you know, projects about, uh, you know, uh, what it is um, to own a home in America and traveling to three communities around the country, three cities, to tell the story of what homeownership means to people. So mm-hmm. often large... Um, projects conceptually, but all rooted in a particular place with narratives that come out of that place. And I can talk more about each of those, but didn't know how much you wanted to kind of redirect here. So I'll, I'll pause for a second. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that everything sort of how it leads up and informs this, this, this work that um, you made about the basketball hoops is, is important for understanding. Okay, well, let me let me take a crack at that as a question. Sure. So, and it's like, you know, maybe the question of why basketball landscapes. So, you know, when I started this project, uh, I think 2004, sometimes I have to look back at my notes because I forget. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, what was the date that I started this? But it was uh, 2004 that I took my first photograph. And I had come, you know, out of about 10 years of very intensive and collaborative projects working with people. You know, when you've worked with uh, people for 10 plus years, it kind of makes sense that you might want to take a break. You know, you've talked to a lot of people. And as I said at the opening of the museum, when I introduced this work, you know, if you spend a lot of time with people, then, you know, it's like I do that they're overrated enough with people already. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, really, you know, joking aside, it's like um, – I just was ready for a change. And I remember I took a trip to the coast to Nagshead with a friend, and I was thinking of what project I might do next. And, uh, you know, I actually came upon the very first image that would be in the collection. It's a photograph of a rental house in Nagshead. And there it was. I remember, like, on the house, there's about um, 10 shutters, all shutters, all painted this bright yellow and a uh, kind of parking area. It's grassy, and you can see over the hill kind of is the fence, you know, the grassy dunes behind it of the ocean, the expanse. But in the foreground, a basketball court, of course, or a basketball hoop. And the post that supports it is painted the same yellow. The backboard is handmade and painted yellow as well. Some of the woodwork that supports the post is the same driftwork and siding that the house is made of. And I thought, like, how remarkable that someone would build their house and then build a basketball court, and the court is, like, integrated into the color scheme and design of the house. It's like as if it was built with the house and the same material. Right. Or has as much value and importance as the house. As much value, as much presence. I mean, it's like they stand there, you know, as, you know, a family, you know, siblings next to each other. And, you know, of course, the house would be number one. It's actually one, 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 all one. It's the first one I would do. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I thought, wow, how cool. And, uh, on that trip home from the coast, I stopped and took a photograph in Plymouth, North Carolina, 
uh, and several others along the way, and there, you know, would be the beginning, the kind of the genesis of a project. Now, I will say, I wasn't, I am not the first to have done this. Of course, uh, there are several other projects. If you start looking, you'll find other people who photograph basketball hoops. But I think, you know, I would say now, now some thirteen, fourteen years later, maybe the only one who has done it in quite the same way. You know, that's so expansively here at home and abroad, mm-hmm. and always sends people. Always were kind of the place, you know. A, a body of work about a sport, but as much about place, about kind of, you know, the eccentricity of all these places, the character of each of these courts, and kind of what unites us around this common theme of play, but also kind of what makes us individual, because so many of these courts, as you know, are so remarkably different, even though the design premise is so simple and the same. So, you know, anyway, back to the kind of, nine, you know, 2004, I had done this first photograph, uh, I went home shortly thereafter, and uh, I thought, hmm, wonder what's, you know, where I should go next to photograph, and I went to see my mechanic, who I had a country mechanic at the time, I was living in Mevin, and I asked JR if he played basketball, and he said no. I said, well, how about growing up? He said, oh, yeah. I said, well, can you take me to the place where you played as a, as a kid, as a child? And he said, sure, sure, meet me on Saturday, meet me, you know, my house. And so on Saturday, I catch up with JR, you know, he's in his pickup truck. I follow him and he takes me to this farm uh, just outside Medan and there's this red barn with a perfectly symmetrical white background, backboard that's faded, mounted on the barn. The lapboards of the red barn, all the wood is, you know, was painted red, but it's fading. There's beautiful uh, kind of, you know, gross in the foreground that's showing that hasn't been played on in years, but yet the color scheme, of it was, I felt like I was looking at a classic painting of red and green and white and mm-hmm. everything perfectly symmetrical. There's a door, kind of a window in the barn that's, you know, with nothing inside. It reads it's black in the photograph. And I just thought geometrically it was so beautiful and a little bit of the old rusty roof. When I took my first photograph, I was shooting film uh, early in this project and it was so painterly and I thought, wow, you know, if I can find a, a court a hoop this close to home, literally in my hometown at the time, it's so beautiful. Imagine if I actually started looking for these. And so sort of that began the kind of the idea that this was a project that had legs. This was a project that I could take anywhere. And uh, it, you know, really, I think in earnest, I started the, the journey at that time after taking that photograph. Yeah, that sounds like a nice, um, or that just sounds like, when you talk about the the work arriving to you, that just sounds like a very sort of poetic way of of discovering this next project from those others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and sometimes projects. I mean, sometimes we. It's interesting in photography, and I think in art. But uh, since I'm a photographer, I'll speak at that about that art form. I mean, I, there are photographers who design projects conceptually, and uh, you know they kind of have something. Um, in mind, I mean, take Taryn Simon's project, the, 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 an index of the hidden and unfamiliar. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know about it, but she photographs. It's a really interesting, you know, exhibition and book uh, of things that we would never know about that exist in this country that are both either hidden or just completely unusual and unfamiliar. And for her, I think it's an idea. I mean, she comes up with this idea. She researches it intensely and sketches out. The project begins to get permissions and then, you know, heads out into the world and starts photographing. And I think that's a pretty common way of working, especially for more conceptual artists. You know, what is the concept? What is the premise here? But then there's another way of approaching where you just kind of live your way into a project. You discover it. it. It's serendipitous. And maybe there's the genesis there. I mean, I think there's often the kind of genesis of an idea. I had actually seen some projects sort of like this, uh, you know, where you photograph one thing over and over again. But I think they had been more formal than the idea of, like, basketball courts. And I could mention a couple that inspired me and kind of the differences when, yeah. we, you know, when, we, when we have time. But this one truly, I think it, it, it discovered me as much as I discovered it. And had I not found a, a couple of really remarkable courts early on, maybe I wouldn't have gone on with it. Maybe I wouldn't have researched it. But then once I started, uh, once I committed to it and decided to do it, and also, as I said earlier, the pleasure of a project where I could tell the story of place and of people and of community 
but I didn't have to talk to so many people. <laughs> you know, take 10 years of collaboration and intensive community work, you know, uh, a year or so going through a divorce, just being tired from all of that, the, the idea that you could go from place to place and travel and explore and, you know, participate in the world, but the, the images you take away are still and quiet. Uh, what a pleasure. And I think in that way, this project has shown me so much of the world. I mean, it really was, was a U.S.-based project for years. Um, and now it's become very much international. And uh, it's really interesting as an artist to have something that you take with you. And everywhere you go, you're kind of looking and photographing and learning. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and even, and even when I'm kind of looking, I mean... Uh, uh, there's a photograph in uh, Rwanda. I'm forgetting the name of the place. I'm going to pause here. Maybe this is in stall. Maybe you have a question. I'll try and look for the photo. Sure. And I, remember. I was actually I just, I'm looking right now at a picture from Rwanda in Kigali, but there's also another one I know that's more um, of like a, de a deserty place. Yeah, here it is. I found it. There's, so there's two that really come to mind, but here's one in Kinihuru. Rwanda. Uh, it was about a two-hour journey from Kigali by bus and moto, you know, little uh, mini motor scooter that you ride on there that are quite dangerous at times, mm -hmm. but everyone rides them. Um, quite dangerous for an American who's used to super safety, <laughs> you know, seatbelts required. Uh, so, uh, and I was doing a project about the people of Rwanda, a portrait, a portrait project about contemporary life and, and, uh, you know, what the Rwandans really look like today. And we just think of this place as, you know, when we think of Rwanda, we think of the genocide. And I went there with Mary, my new partner, and now um, my life partner at the time, and our daughter, actually, who was three at the time, Lillian. And I thought I would do a project about the genocide. And instead, after getting there and realizing that was sort of the epic cliche for outsiders to come to Rwanda and once again tell the story of what was you know, admittedly, you know, obviously one of the you know, horrific events in the history of the world that defined this place, but, you know, so often the only narrative that is told about the people of this community. Um, right. So Just like in Flint, and, and that, just like in Flint. Yes, yeah, the same thing, this kind of stereotype, the place we go to, and every year on the anniversary of the genocide is the same story of everyone's either a perpetrator or a survivor, and there's a story of reconciliation, which is powerful, but it's told over and over again, and the the perpetrators are photographed in some way where they look slightly bizarre and menacing and the victims are forgiving. And it's, and it is, I mean, I don't, I don't want to diminish it because I think it is, it is the defining story of this place and it's a complicated story, but you know, another way to look at Rwanda is to look at the generosity of the people, the, the beauty of the landscape, the resourcefulness of a place that has had such a, uh, an epic struggle and has survived and moved forward, the progress that it's making in its cities, the, the general lack of corruption from a leader, from Paul Kagame, who's complicated and actually accused of being a strong man. And, uh, you know, human, you know, not, I don't want to, I don't want to beautify the situation, but also a leader who has really, you know, committed to making this country a better place for all. Uh, whether you like his tactics or not, I think sure. that many would concede that he has increased healthcare, education, uh, so, and, and 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 really one of the truly safe and welcoming countries that I've traveled to and photographed. And it's really you know remarkable place to be, and also a country that has the, the highest representation of women in their government of any country in the world. Oh wow, I didn't so, know that. Yeah, I mean it's I mean. Again, I, I don't want to be the one to really turn this into a podcast about the current president, but I think you would find, uh, I think it's unfortunate that Kagame, I think he had an opportunity to be one of the great leaders of a small you know country, evolving country in the world. And I think a lot of what he did was good. But now, you know, like in so many cases, when you, you know, after the last election the, was a sham, really. I mean, it was mm -hmm. no one could run against him. And uh you know, have a chance. I mean, he kind of controls the, the country in a way that, like any strong man might. And, uh, you know, there's really no room for an opposition candidate. And I think it's unfortunate in a country that's made so much progress. 
and 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 not that he wouldn't be elected if he didn't resort to the tactics where every bus in the city carries a you know uh, a sign of him running for president and where there are political events for him and pretty much no one else in the whole country. It's like he's running against no one because you really can't oppose him and challenge him in that way. And yet, I think someone has said what he's done is really good for the country. I, you know that kind of contradiction is complicated. Um, so anyway, but forget that for a second. I'm sorry. Maybe we don't even need to have that in our podcast. It's <laughs> so off the point. I mean, I no regrets about what I've said, but it's off, kind of off the point. The point is that this, too, is a place, a, a country that's been cast with a certain narrative that, that is told over and over again. Yes. And I went there to do a very different kind of project. And I was traveling uh, to Kinihira in this, on this particular day to meet um, – one of the Peace Corps volunteers who would be my host because I didn't speak um, in Rwanda. Uh, not many people do. And uh, even though English is the official language, many of the people in the rural areas don't speak English. And uh, I was traveling by bus and moto. Um, and uh, so with language barrier I would have in the places I would go, I, I connected with the Peace Corps volunteers in the country and a memo went out from one of the directors of kind of the volunteers saying hey there's this interesting photographer who's here doing a project and is traveling around the country and in exchange for hosting him he'll send you all the photographs he takes of your site when he comes to visit it and so i would go to different places and i would provide a service for these volunteers who were doing really remarkable work yeah. But also then I would meet people and have a translator if I had, and often spend a night or two and that uh, it would help me with logistics of lodging and I was, would do my portrait project. And here I am in the middle of nowhere in a small town up on the mountains outside of Kigali, two hours from anything I knew, if you will. It was a really long journey by bus and on foot, bike, taxi, and moto, three, yeah. three or four forms of transportation. And I see this really beautiful basketball court. And uh, it was, you know, if you look at the, it says Church Playground is the title of the Building Museum in Kinihira, Rwanda, 2013. Um, but it's also, like many of these small villages, the school and the church are aligned or connected or at least share the same grounds. It really was the playground for the school, for the church. And what I find so remarkable about it is it's, you know, a court on red clay. Well, we've seen that in the U.S., certainly in rural areas. But that the free throw line, which, by the way, is the uh, international free throw line, <laughs> is made out of bricks that are actually embedded in the earth, that are planted oh. in the ground, in the earth, defining the free throw line and the foul line. And it's the same brick that the church is built from. I mean, it's this old, worn brick, this kind of red brick. And you can bear, it's sort of hard to see the lines in a way. When you first look, you know, it sort of looks like the earth. And you think, God, what, to go to the trouble to create, you know, this perfect court and kind of in, uh, I hate to use the word kind of the rural conditions. I want to use the word primitive. But I don't know if that's not in a demeaning sense, but in a sense that, you know, here's a community without the kind of modern manufacturing tools, as far in the mountains, the backboard is made out of uh, common lumber, it looks like. It's mm -hmm. nailed together. It looks like the hoop itself is custom welded. There's no little hangers for a net. There's no net on it. In fact, you'd never get a net for your series from this one because there's no way to attach a net to this hoop. It was just a welded hoop, probably welded in the village. And then, of course, there's two posts that support the backboard, and they are made from a hand-hued, it looks like a tree. Tree yeah. trunk has just been huge. And it's just the kind of simplicity of material of a design that's completely indigenous to this community. And I think it sort of sums up some of the point of this whole project that each place creates this court. And here it's a very celebrated location. It's like right at the center of the school and church where all the children come together and it's built with the materials of the place and the same design. And, uh, you know, it's funny, like I photographed it empty, but, you know, 15 minutes before I photographed it, there was like 150 kids playing wow. on it and around it. And, you know, I asked my host, hey, can I take a picture of the court? And they kind of laughed and they asked all the children to clear it. But before I could photograph the court, I, you know, was volunteered to do a picture of the entire collection of students <laughs> for the whole school. <laughs> so I did a kind of community portrait of everyone. And uh, then I had kind of the court, because you wouldn't have seen the free throw line, you wouldn't have seen, thought about the building materials, you would have seen all these children alive and on this place. 
and it gets back to the point you were making earlier of kind of collecting, of thinking of the materials and the artifacts or what's left behind, but also what is the genesis of these courts? You know, what are they built out of? Uh, you know, some of the most interesting ones are the ones that have faded and kind of like the old barn that I talked about, what is left behind in place and what do they tell us about, you know, the history of a place mm-hmm. and the community that built them and the lives that played on them. But also you look at it in another way to think about it. And this court is what does it tell you about the intentionality of this community, what matters to them? Uh, you know, why put this right at the, the center of this, you know, key place, the, this, the community church and school, and why go to the trouble to build a, a lane, <laughs> you know, the labor and trouble to build it out of out of bricks embedded in the earth, right. you know, think of what that takes. So it also shows kind of commitment, but also ingenuity. Um, another yes. image kind of al- along those lines that I want to talk about a little bit is one of my favorites, and it's a charter school in Harlem, New York. And, uh, you know, also it's, a, it's kind of, I mean, it's what I might call a repurposed or a, a, a court that's uh, been embellished. Uh, it's just a basic, okay, let me take it absent the photograph for a second. It's a metal pole holding a traditional kind of fiberglass backboard with a classic red and orange hoop and a, a mesh, you know, nylon net. Uh, concrete wall and asphalt in the foreground. Sounds, and then ivy overgrown. Sounds pretty boring, but give this to a charter school community of students and say, paint this foreground, this beautiful kind of aqua blue. The free throw lane is a deep orange. Then there's a deeper blue in the rest of the court. All the lines are symmetrical. The concrete wall in the back or masonry wall is, you know, there's five hands reaching towards the sky. Actually, you see that they're reaching towards this huge basketball that's painted at the top of the wall. Uh, the hands are, you know, dark black, brown, yellow, red, orange. You know, they represent the diversity of who we are as a country, the kind of the skin color, but also kind of like the difference. You know, they're all kind of different in the same place, all reaching towards the ball. So it's kind of reaching towards you know, symbolizing the sport and play, but also the range of people who play this game. The ball itself is covered mostly by ivy that's thrown down from above and kind of that the whole like notion of like this public place that is built by students that is, you know, also competing with the the environment for, you know, to claim the space. And then also to kind of round this out, there's a series of concentric circles painted in all these different colors that just speak to the life and vitality and and design of a place like Harlem. So, you know, again, isn't it amazing, you know, give the same asphalt and masonry court to students in another part of the world and what will they come up with you know how how this court takes on the character of place and tells us you know who this you know what this community is about in some ways and it's really fun when you look at this work i mean i love to have the the place you know if you go to the exhibition at the national building museum you'll see that of course they're all titled by place and then with sometimes footnotes like what I'm telling you, or I mean, there's some of my commentaries there and some of our curator, Cassante Broich, is talking about the importance of these places, some of the buildings, their former history. So all of that is kind of part of the story in an interesting way. But what I also find is kind of interesting is when people look at them, do they know where they're from? Like, can you guess? And you sort of never really get it right. Sometimes people do. They know the place. But... Uh, more often than when they kind of read the title after thinking about it, they say, aha, of course, you know, of course that's Harlem. That feels like Harlem, the vibrancy of that. So, you know, whether it's international or in the U.S., people often have a, you know, I think that's what good photographs do. They work without information in a way that makes us think about, uh, you know, the world they depict. But then when we get the additional information, it's like a, a layer of complexity that we add to it that kind of rounds out the story. And, uh, Anyway, that's what I like about that image and about many of these from the series. Yes, I'm wondering if when you, when you sort of, the feelings that you got from finding these hoops and finding hoops in certain settings, um, I just, I want, I want you to describe sort of your first initial reaction when you're sort of stumbling on these places or arriving at that hoop in Rwanda, um, is there any connection that you have? It, it, does it ever feel spiritual when you're finding these when you're finding these hoops? 
Well, I mean, the one in Rwanda, it sort of feels like it's like when I saw that, it was like, wow, there's an old friend. I mean, it's kind of funny, too. It's like uh, I mean, there's another one in Rwanda that uh, in Rulindo that I also saw. We were driving through the mountains and I could see at a distance down. I mean, sometimes you see in the mountains, like, you know, five miles away, it's clear. And you see down into this little village. And I saw, I thought, is that a basketball court? Oh, How my cool. gosh. I love that. Yeah. That's and so good. So, you know, in that case, you sort of drive down to it. And, and, and there is something. Uh, it's, that one was at a primary school in Ruindo. And I would drive down to it. And there were school children there playing. And I played hoop with them. And it, it's so, the, you know, I don't play like I used to play. And then with some of my other projects and communities I did, you know, in the days of Stories of Home, I played in Chattanooga and some of the communities I photographed. Um, and, uh, so, you know, in the case of Orlando, we went down there, we were led to the village where you went into the school to ask permission to photograph their court, which I always do if it's a public place or a private place, ask permission. Sure. And it's almost always granted. Uh, and then, you know, it sort of said like, there is that connection as well, but I also feel some bond with these places. I mean, I'm working on this project and you see them, you know, how different, you know, they are around the world. It's kind of remarkable. So there's often a kind of initial rush, uh, but sometimes, like there's one there's one from the series that I really love. It's in, uh, well, there are many from the series that I love. They're like all my children, and they're all favorites. Sure. Uh, there's a school play, playground in, in uh, Shawnee, Wyoming. Um, I was traveling with a dear friend. Uh, his wife had just turned 50, and... Um, her dad had given her the old family Lexus, as it wasn't called, an SUV Lexus, kind of old, uh, used Lexus for a birthday present. And he was, and I flew out to Denver, picked it up, and decided we would drive it home together. He was going fly fishing along the way, and I was photographing and looking for hoops. Yeah. So we were camping. Hoop hunting. And was, yeah, so it's like, it was really great. Found some really great photographs on that trip. And I came, we were driving through kind of a very rural Wyoming where much of the state is, is expansive and rural and we come upon this basketball court and it's this huge expanse of fields. It's all kind of a tonality of like wheat. It's like light, kind of neutral, muted colors of like tan. And then there's this basketball court that sort of sits at a school around in the foreground and all of the, it's a basketball court with a, a you know, a concrete pad that's about 14 feet by 14 feet. The post is painted this beautiful deep blue. The backboard is kind of like washed out pink. There's a swing set and a merry-go-round, and they're all painted bright and different kind of neon, fading neon colors, if there is such a thing as a fading neon color. But they were painted these super bright colors, and they're sort of, and it all feels like this like wash of color across this expanse of neutrality. Just a beautiful painting it would make it's a photograph in this case so sometimes like i'll come upon it and i'm just struck by the you know the the color the design the kind of feel of the place other times right. you know it's way more exciting because there's a whole narrative element um and often those are found when i'm not even looking for it's like um so what year was this uh i think it was 2006 I was on assignment for the Washington Post magazine, and uh, I was working with a writer um, about uh, who was telling the story about uh, the culture of mining in West Virginia. And it was a year after the Sago disaster, and uh, where 13 miners were ultimately killed. They were trapped inside the mine. An announcement was made that they had escaped, and then. They actually weren't, and it was a really controversial and difficult time for the whole community uh, because of the loss of death and the risk, and also the announcement first that they had survived, and then they didn't, and just it was a, one of the great uh, significant tragedies in mining. And I had been sent on assignment with Joby Wark, uh, who was a prize-winning reporter, uh, a year after the fact to kind of look at the culture of mining. And we were photographing you know, all of the underground miners in this the pinnacle mine in this one community in West in West Virginia, but also telling the story of the culture in that world and what it what it's like, you know, a year after the disaster. And I was riding home with one of the miners who would be featured in the story. And we were driving to this little town of North Fork, West Virginia, 
probably a town of like, it feels like a town of like 500 in the middle of what feels like nowhere, a very kind of distant part of West Virginia. And yeah. as I'm driving into town, I see a sign that says, welcome to North Fork, um, a basketball capital of the United States. <laughs> 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 so Abigail, can you imagine what, like how that went? <laughs> right. It's like the universe. Yeah, it's like, okay, here I am, North Fork, Virginia, you know, deep in Appalachia. In the middle of mining culture, welcome to North Fork, basketball capital of the United States. Wow. And then as we drive into the town center, I see from a distance the community playground completely repurposed. It's one of my favorite photographs from the series. There's this brick wall that's been completely repainted in this beautiful deep red. Up above it are three houses that were once grand that are all kind of looked like semi-abandoned, kind yeah. of in disarray. And then there's it's, you know, there's vines growing down that are kind of taking off the court. But recently, the court itself has been repurposed. And the backboard is painted with an NF. It's a deep blue. There's a heart. There's a cross. There's a the fish of hope and the, you know, God and Jesus. Yes, yes. And then there is the angel of hope. And, uh, you know, I remember driving to this town and coming over the hill and thinking about it, and there's the court in the distance, and all I see is this angel <laughs> hovering, you know, on the wall above the court. And I thought, okay, now I have seen it all. And right. um, I would go back and call a year later and say, how is it possible? You know, I called the library, and now you could just Google this. This was 2006. I mean, I could have found it online. I looked a little online. Uh, they had won more consecutive high school state championships than any high school in America. And so, hence, they claimed the title that they were the basketball capital of the world. Not an exaggeration to win that many state titles. Of course, I don't know how many teams are in their league. Yeah. <laughs> but, and how competitive their league is. But, you know, but anyway, the whole notion that you're looking for one thing and you stumble upon something else, and then the, the surprise is really, you know, quite wonderful. And, you know, I took the photographs. Um, I went back that evening and I actually went back the next morning. I took the photograph twice because, you know, I was, I was traveling with a friend and a minor and it really was about him on that day, but right. you know, it was easy enough to go back. And often you need time to do these pictures. They are like doing portraits Yes, that you, you know, you spend time on the court, you do different bandages, just like different poses with people that you kind of relax into the place and, really kind of look at it. You know, I often kind of just walk to the center of the court and look around and then decide where to start. And so it's not unlike a portrait session, a portrait of place. Um, yeah. Anyway, so that, that's one of the surprises. There are a lot of images. I'm starting to tire from talking so much, but I mean, <laughs> like you can't, uh, there's a couple others that are kind of worthy of talking about. Uh, maybe take a break on this scene and come back. I do want to talk about the abandoned campsite or school box at one at some point yes uh, and as well but let's hold that for a sec yeah sure i was just um i guess i i'm wondering also how your interactions were um throughout your time when you are photographing the hoops you said that that one time in uh rwanda you waited for everyone to leave and uh all the kids to be done playing before you took that photograph and i'm wondering if there are other times when they're what they're the courts are being used and you kind of had to to hang out and be a part of what was happening before making your image you know that's a really good question and in some of these courts it's really a matter of just asking a homeowner can you take the picture right like there's this, one of my favorites in the series so i'm going to answer with two two really different kinds of course one is a photograph from franklin maine it's an old barn it kind of looks like it's in you know it is aging, but it has a beautiful, it has a beautiful kind of orangey red door and then a light green door. It's gray up above, gray shingle sided, and a perfectly light blue, almost Carolina blue, mm -hmm. like in, you know, <laughs> uh, backboard and um, the driveway is half gravel, half grass. It's very geometric, and there's these two classic folding kind of chairs, uh, fabric, you know, nylon back and aluminum base right in front of the door and i came upon this court and there was this lovely elderly couple sitting in the two chairs and i told them what i was doing uh kind of explained it they didn't seem to mind at all and i took a picture actually of the two and i'm sitting there in their chairs <laughs> but i was raised too well to ask them to get up and, and leave you know they were like in their 
early 80s and it's like you know sitting there in the shade uh, sure. kind of enjoying kind of being outside so i said to them do you mind if i come back tomorrow morning and photograph this again oh no no you know just knock or if we're not here just go ahead and take the picture so i came back the next day and the scene was identical except that the chairs had been set aside to the left and the door of the garage was open and it just occurred to me after knocking and no one answering that oh they slid the door open and moved the chairs because they actually parked their car in the garage right. and had gone off to get you know to run some errands so i did what i rarely do i changed a few things around but i just moved them back to exactly as they had been as if they had been home and inside uh i slid the door closed i put the chairs exactly where i'd seen them the day before because that to me told the story of kind of where they sit every evening or every day of their life for a while uh, in their yard. And I took that same photograph. So, you know, sometimes there's that of kind of going, and it's just kind of, the, it's kind of a slow and kind of enjoyable way to ask permission. Yeah. But I think the kind of question you were getting at, which is also very common in the city courts, is you go to a court, unless you go really early in the morning, uh, you can't go late in the evening because people play until dark. So unless you go really early in the morning, the courts are full. And then what I'll do is I'll try and find someone uh, who kind of understands what I'm doing and ask them to clear the court. Like in Italy, um, let's see, I was in Naples, and I was looking for a court of basketball. It's actually quite popular in Italy. Mm-hmm. And who uh, was there for a big birthday, my daughter and um, wife took me there. Uh, Mary treated as a birthday present to go back to Italy, and we were traveling all over, uh, in this case, southern Italy. But during the days, I often had time to go looking for hoops, and I found this really cool court uh, in, you know, sort of the center of Naples, and there are a bunch of people playing on it. And, you know, if you're hanging out taking pictures, it sort of bothers folks. Right. And you sort of ask permission. So it turns out there was one person who spoke pretty good English, and it had a break when, they, you know, I asked if I could take a picture of court, and then he says, well, what's this about? Well, I've learned that, you know, I carry my series in a Dropbox folder or sometimes my website, but that's hard to load sometimes when you're in the middle of nowhere right. to access the web. So I have a, you know, a set on my phone, and just when people – it's really cool. I hand my phone to him. Uh, he actually was wearing a Tar Heel jersey, which was kind of amusing. <laughs> Alma mater. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought, this is going to go well. He spoke just enough English, but he didn't have to speak that much English. I don't speak – I speak hardly any Italian and just a few words. And uh, – I showed him the photographs and he got it. You know, he went through the whole series and they're labeled. They're mostly I show international images, but people are also, when you're traveling in Africa or in Europe or wherever, interested in U.S. courts. Yeah. And uh, then he just kind of waved everyone off. And I had like, you know, maybe two minutes <laughs> max. Oh, wow. Yeah. So when you, when you clear a court like that, you have to be really precise. You have to know exactly what you're after. Uh, and sometimes then they don't mind you photographing while they're playing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that's the case. I've hardly ever had a problem and I almost always ask. There was one instance, um, where I was traveling, um, in Northern Rwanda. Um, and I was working with, a. I had a host with me who was Rwandan, who was, you know, basically I was photographing for this organization and he was uh, showing me a good time. He knew I was looking for basketball courts. So he took me to this court. And uh, there was a lot of people playing on it. And yeah. he, you know, said to me, oh, it's okay. Just take any pictures you want, you know. And, you know, that's like something you wouldn't do in our country. You wouldn't just say, like, if I was hosting someone from another country, it's okay to take pictures. I'd know that people might mind. But he was just being a really gracious host. And right. He figured, oh, it doesn't matter. And so I started taking pictures. And some of the guys stopped and came over to me and really were pissed off. Yeah. And they were like, why are you taking that picture? You didn't ask permission. And then I thought, okay. And and I tried, I, I speak a little, I learned a little Kinyawanda, but not enough to explain myself. And he was kind of trying to explain. And then I just sort of found someone who spoke English who actually went to school at Boston University. And I said, well, <laughs> first off, I apologize. I wouldn't have done this. It was, you know, a misunderstanding. My host mm-hmm. thought it would be okay. I'm sorry. Let me show you the pictures here. I'll delete any of them if you want me to. In fact, I really wasn't interested in, in photos of people playing. I wanted to photograph the court. And I said, here, look at my phone. I pulled up the images. I explained the project. And then they're all like, wow, this is really cool. You know, it's yeah. like, yeah, 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 you go ahead. But, you know, don't ever take our picture without asking again. It's like I said, you're right. 
sorry. I won't. And then he, you know, this main guy who kind of the one who had confronted me says to everyone, clear the court you know, in King Rwanda. <laughs> and everyone gets off. And I have like missed like I took like 30 seconds. All right. Like I, yeah, like I was like, the point was, thank you. You know, you were right. I shouldn't have done this. And, uh, you know, but what was nice is then when he kind of saw the scope of the project, he got it and supported it and said, you know, now you've asked permission. And also you were good enough to say sorry. Uh, right. You know, I mean, a lot of journalists would say, hey, I've got a right to do this. This is public, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I think we've learned in photography that there's, you know, legal permission and then there's what is kind of appropriate. And what feels and good and what will feel good when, yeah. you, when you have that image later on and you're sharing it with other people. It, you know, of course, at the time, it sounds like you that was an uncomfortable situation, but since it was rectified and you also had this chance to make an image that you wanted and have this interaction and, and you know, communicate with these players like that ended up being a, a, a good story. Yeah. Right. And I actually knew at the time I shouldn't have been taking those pictures anyway, even though he said, go ahead. It's like, it just didn't feel right. You know, sure. it's like, you know, I should have like, I have been doing this long enough and had the judgment that even though my host wanted to clear it for me because he was just trying to be a host, I should have known that that felt inappropriate and that the response that followed was not a surprise. And it was actually kind of, you know, good to have, you know, that interaction. It kind of was a you know, communication we wouldn't have had. So out of the difficulty of this came some, you know, kind of understanding of kind of how we work and kind of, it was just cool. So, yes. You know, the way, the way it kind of played out. And, and looking at some of these images, I also, I'm, I just think, and this has um, come up for me as well sometimes, but that the shadows of the hoops, the shadows that the hoops make are also very interesting and very important sometimes and can add this extra level of detail. Um, and I was wondering how much you pay attention. I mean, of course, as a photographer, you're thinking about light, I'm sure constantly, but I'm wondering like that little, when we're talking about that picture that you made in Maine of the, the blue backboard, there's like this sliver mm -hmm. of the shadow of the hoop, which makes me think it's early mm -hmm. morning. And it sort of adds to the depth of the backboard and the hoop as objects. Um, it becomes sort of bigger than what it is physically and i was just wondering mm -hmm. if you could talk about that well it is early morning you're right about that so kudos for sort of seeing that and uh <laughs> as a photographer i've learned to always take credit for things like shadows <laughs> and then you know i mean often we see them sometimes we don't and you know sometimes you just said like you're so charged like wow what a great place to take this photograph and it's then kind of in the printing and, and you know really spending time with images that you kind of see the details that like when you're taking photographs, sometimes your mind's operating at a completely different level. It's like you're seeing it all, but, you know, it's really like you're not processing it in the same kind of way. There's everything from composition to exposure to, like, the different points of view. And it's kind of, again, like portraits, like you get that this fleeting moment of an expression that someone offers something that feels essential. But then, you know, when you look at the image later, you say, wow, how interesting how their hands are placed or how they're leaning or some other gesture that's part of it that you might have missed at the time. Sure. Um, but lighting, I mean, you often try and work in the best lighting and sometimes one would go back to a place. But with this project, I often didn't have that luxury. Like another one just like that where I love the shadow is a primary school in Ocha, Namibia. And I was traveling with Mary. It was like one of our first like international dates. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we were, you know, we went on a safari in the very northern Namibia. We drove across this beautiful expanse of country where you could drive. Sometimes, you know, we would drive for two or three hours on these hard-packed gravel roads and see no one. Uh, the tradition in this part of Namibia is if you see someone walking along the road, you pull over and offer them a ride. Their cars are so infrequent. So we come upon this little, tiny little town, Ocho. Um, and uh, I just, you know, I know where to find hoops. Sometimes I see them just kind of like wandering, but go to the schools or the churches, you'll often find them. So we went to the primary school, and there was this amazingly minimal court and if you, I don't know if you're looking at the image, but it has a, it's a concrete foreground that's kind of faded and worn in a way. So the concrete is actually quite beautiful with a perfectly symmetrical mm -hmm. uh, free throw lane. And the wall itself is kind of a brick and masonry, stucco uh, and brick, kind of in a beautiful kind of tan that's faded behind it, a perfectly blue sky. And then there's this hoop with no net, in fact. There's this hoop on a pole with no backboard. Right. And the shadow of it is almost yes. larger and more prominent than the hoop itself. 
And, you know, so it was just midday. That's what I had to work with. And, you know, boy, in that case, I saw the shadow and, you know, was really after the symmetry of the photograph. But later what I would find out is that this is a sport called netball mm-hmm. that was invented so that women – do you know about netball? Yes, or, I do. But please explain. What, okay, well, you can – feel free to add, add on because you can probably tell our your listeners um, – <laughs> kind of more about this than I can, but what I can tell you is it was a sport that was invented kind of for women to right. play. It's less it didn't aggressive involve dribbling. Basketball. Less aggressive, more ladylike basketball, no backboard, of course, no bank shots, no dribbling, just passing and no net, just a simple hoop. You would pass it, you know, pass the ball daintily from one to another and then drop it through the hoop. And it's, it's you know, played commonly in Africa, Australia, and different parts of the world. And it was very much a gender segregated way of kind of introducing basketball to men and women, different sports. So, I mean, I think it's interesting now that basketball is so popular amongst women worldwide. And sometimes when I would clear the courts, I wouldn't be clearing the courts of men, but it would be men and women who are playing together or separately. I mean, it's not uncommon to go to these community playgrounds and see, you know, depending on the country, men and women, you know, shooting you know, playing pickup games together or sometimes courts, you know, can, you know, pickup games that are just women, it varies. So I think that issue of, you know, gender segregation and kind of, you know, in city courts, they're certainly across, you know, race and gender, everyone's sort of playing. It doesn't matter. They're not really segregated in that way so much. If you can play, you can get on the court. Right. So uh, anyway, so it was interesting. I had never known anything about netball. And this was one that just I came upon and, uh, that's the light that I was given to work with. But, you know, your question also raises another kind of interesting um, thought here. I mean, one of the photographers who certainly, I don't know that inspired the project for me, but I've, that I've referenced or thought about in the work, you know, in terms of doing this work are two German photographers, Bernd and Hilla Becker. Yes. And I'm, they are I'm known for their. Fan. Yeah. So, you know, their blast furnaces and yes. water towers and these, what they call typologies. And they see themselves as conceptual artists, but what they photograph is very matter-of-fact, is very real in the world. There are these forms, like blast furnaces, water towers, uh, dust-collecting towers. They're basic industrial forms. And they photograph them. They're all black and white. They're all done with large-format cameras, and they they almost only work in very neutral, soft, diffuse light. Mm-hmm. And it kind of gets back to the question of, you know, why not work in that kind of light? And I think their goal is to separate the structures from the environment. In fact, some of them, the, the background, because the light's so neutral, it washes out into nothing. It almost looks like these structures are photographed in a studio. You know, right. imagine this huge uh, water tower or blast furnace kind of separate from the world that it inhabits. And uh, I think the work is really remarkable and beautiful. I love it as well. But nothing, I mean, so in some ways it inspires what I'm doing. You take this basic form, uh, a simple hoop that's 18 inches in diameter that's 10 feet off the ground and the backboard is 42 inches by 6 feet. I mean, it's really pretty formal yeah. in terms of design. Yes. And yet it's manifestations like the towers that they photograph, uh, the water towers or whatever, are so completely different depending on the, you know, the builders, the designers, the location, the materials available. And yet, you know, while I say my work is similar in that way, the approach of separating the hoops from the environment is the, really the exact opposite of what I was after. I was after, you know, I mean, I was equally interested in the surrounding environment as I was, or as I am in the hoop itself. That it, that it, it, that it, it is the very place that it's located in that I find is interesting as the hoop itself. Right. Uh, so, and the, the color the sense of light, the irregular light, that everything that makes up an environment, you know, as I would come upon these hoops, that's what I wanted. It was rare that I would go back to photograph often. I would just, I would photograph them in that place and time as I had come upon them. You know, so early morning, late afternoon, mm-hmm. midday light, which photographers usually stay away from. The one in Ocho, Namibia, is like really bright, harsh midday light. And yet it's kind of beautiful. And it's because it gives us that hard shadow. It yes. defines that place at that time of day. I'm remembering that I took a photo of this photo when I was at the show. Um, and it was one <laughs> of my favorites from 
from, yeah, in person. And I love also, I'm just realizing now that there's another netball hoop right behind the main netball hoop. There's another one peeking out (laughs) over the wall that just along with the shadow is just this wonderful echo that sort of moves through the image, which is really nice. Well, good eye. I didn't know that was there. I'm going to take credit for it anyway. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I just realized that. no, it's I. It's it's one of those. You have a really good eye to see that. I mean, yeah, I didn't know it was there, of course, but I did. But I don't know when I was taking it how much attention I played to that. But it kind of mimics the hoop, and it's just kind of like this subtle, uh, you know, reminder that this is happening on the other side of the wall as well. Right. And actually, I did go to the, I did go to the other side of the wall and take those pictures, and they just were not as interesting as these. So you know, often like there's so many images that go into a single photo that totally. remains. And I, I also think that it's interesting that this image, it's very, very simple, formally so simple, but also really touches on sport as a kind of uh, part of colonialism, that there's a reason that this sport exists in Namibia um, and it wasn't invented there. And I think that that also is just an interesting um, a point of reference. Yeah. That, that sometimes, it, I mean, is, I mean, another way to think about this too, and maybe in a, in a less, you know, uh, romantic notion of like, here's this popular sport that is played worldwide, uh, that, you know, creates and connects communities. Here's this business. Totally. <laughs> yes. But, you know, you know, the average NBA team, there's 30 teams in the NBA, I think, uh, with their average value is $1.3 billion. You know, we have, it's the second most popular sport in the world. You know, there's an NCAA men's and women's there's a W NBA, their international leagues, and then there's the apparel companies. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you think of the value and, you know, you think of basketball as a business. And truly, this it is a truly American, you know, invention, basketball. And, uh, you know, we have exported it in the same way that we would export any kind of franchise or business. And there's profit to be made. And there's it, that's part of the equation, a part of what you have to think about. This idea that is something that is marketed now and branded and exported around the world, and so that has you know, you know that raises other questions. And, you know, definitely. And I mean, I think that's why there's a lot of power in that image from um, Rwanda of, in front of the church because that hoop is made out of what seems to be local materials. So it's this translation of a mass-produced uh, object. That under yeah. nor- under circumstances I am used to, you would you would purchase rather than making your own. So this idea that these branches or trunks of trees that are local to that area, uh, it, it that feels like it carries a lot of weight and maybe like some pushback on this idea. Um, and and I have no idea if that is purposeful or not. But I just I love that it's like uh, we can we can complete every everything we need is here. I think there's power in that. Yeah, most of the ones I photograph, and I, you know, you, I think will agree, are closer to folk art than they are to <laughs> exported business. I mean, there, are, mm-hmm. there are most, many of them are, you know, hoops that are put up by individuals. Some of them are handmade, you know, fashioned out of materials of place and put in a part of the community where they kind of have importance done by the community. You know, not to say that you know we don't brand and create things that then are become popular. And everyone wants them because of the marketing. But, you know, some of them really feel like more places of play than, you know, the expansion of American business. I mean, I think it's always both because it's hard to separate, you know, what we do with the music and, and you know, games that we take with us. You know, everything is kind of, you know, is marketed, if you will, uh, these days. But anyway, so that's kind of more interesting to me is the more folkloric court. Yes, and I think that that there are boring basketball courts that and they and they're boring to me because they have a pristine backboard and they have a pristine hoop and they have a pristine net and they have a the it looks like they haven't been played on. And um when I see those I'm like, "Oh, my work is I don't have I don't I'm not needed here. And not only am I not needed, like it's not an interesting place to me as much as, as places where I can see that there's use. Um, so that's something that I think really translates in the, the courts that you've chosen to photograph too, is that they, they are, they're worn 
in some way. Yeah, they're the ones that to tell the stories of community. Those are the ones that interest me. Not that not that a boring manufacturer who doesn't tell a story of the community. It's just, and I have some in the series that are in like housing developments where they're just, you know, you go down to the local big box store and buy your basketball mm-hmm. hoop and put it up. And that tells you something about that community. It's just, it's less interesting to me. Right. And uh, I know to you as well. So, yes. Uh, are you still, are you still hoop hunting? The beauty of an exhibition, especially a comprehensive one, is that it gives you permission to, to stop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because these things are, you know, I think many artists are, you go and you go and you go. And then when you, a book or a uh, exhibition gives you a kind of closure. So I'm no longer hoop hunting. I'm kind of thinking about next projects and what to do next. You know, all this to say, if I see an interesting court, I'm going to take a photo. You're not going to turn I'm gonna, anything in, down. <laughs> no, I mean, if I, I mean, if I stumble upon, you know, you know, some of the ones I have, like, you know, recently we went to Spain for a holiday. Actually, I was still hunting at the time, but, you know, in the city, the graffiti courts there are fantastic. I mean, just, you know, that's a whole nother project that you could do about the graffiti that surrounds these courts. They yes. become... Uh, murals for public art and that's part of the kind of whole culture of basketball in the cities are the murals that surround them so like when i see the great ones i will continue to take photographs and, and who knows this i mean the series could could have a you know a second wave but i'm kind of taking a break from it now and right. thinking about what to do next and that's a pleasure as well great well that was my last question um so thank you so much for making time for this my and pleasure. It was really fun. Well, listen, I know we've, we've been talking forever. This has really been fun. So yes, thanks, Ryan. of course. We'll take care. And I will get scheduled. Yes, I will be in touch. And thanks for making the time. Of course. Take care. All right. Take care, Bill. Bye-bye.